and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at pub quizzes. We're your hosts. I'm I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jill. <laughs> yeah. Do we need to change the tagline? I guess we do. Or you know, at this eh. point, we've done 202 episodes. You know, it's fine. You guys know what the deal is yeah. at this point. Come Some on. people just fast forward through this anyway. <laughs> I know that. I mean, I would. If I were you. Um, uh, yeah. So this is our second episode of season two. Yes. Doesn't we're, feel good. Ooh, fresh. It feels, ooh, so luxurious. Ooh, ooh it's, still, it's still a nice surprise when we ooh, show up in your ooh, feed. Oh, oh, has it been two weeks already, you said, uh-huh. to yourself? The passage of time. Oh, it's so quick. Time is a flat circle. You know, and then you start thinking about existentially what time is and how quickly it moves. <laughs> and, but, oh, whoops. Nope. Don't let the spookies in. Here comes Lauren and Julia. <laughs> And our newest podcast host that we traded, <laughs> yes, from Triviality. Yep, we now officially have Neil. So you're welcome, everybody. Enjoy your pucks, boys. <laughs> yeah, hope you enjoy your pucks that arrive because you don't realize why it happened because you did not <laughs> respond because you don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> Ken's just like, why do we have a bag of hockey pucks? What's this microphone from? Where did Neil go? Isn't he supposed to record with us today? <laughs> No, ha Hi, brothers. <laughs> Joke's on you. He's ours now. In your faces. Um, so today, I'm going to tell you all about something that I mm, taught my kids in my first, uh, first official art history mm-hmm. class of art history, uh, history of Western art, ancient to medieval. Uh, so today, we are going to be talking about the Lascaux Cave. Yeah. So if you don't know what the Lascaux Caves are, um, it's actually a network of caves near the village of Montignac in the department of Dordogne in southwestern France. I will be fucking up these French pr- pronunciations. So if get you ready just think of her that. as like if you if you recall correctly. Uh, Lauren told me that if I'm going to speak Italian, I have to pretend like I have a chunk of Parmigiano in my yeah, hand. You have to pinch your fingers. And when she speaks French... Her mouth gets teeny tiny because the French they barely open Un their mouths. <laughs> petite mouche. Okay, so um, there are six hundred wall paintings that cover the interior walls oh and gosh. ceilings of this cave. So, just as an, just a brief overview of what the Lascaux cave <laughs> is, um, these paintings p- represent primarily large animals, typical local contemporary fauna that correspond with the fossil record of the Upper Paleolithic in the area. So they're super old. Um, they are the combined effort of many generations, and with continued debate, the age of the paintings is now usually estimated at around seventeen thousand years old which that is uh, referred to as the early Magdalenian period. Oh my goodness. It's, it's way older than I can actually comprehend as a human being. Like I have a really hard time comprehending like past time mm-hmm. in terms of like thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So this is definitely difficult for me. So Lascaux was inducted into the UNESCO World Heritage Site list in 1979 as an element of the prehistoric sites and decorative caves of the Vejer Valley. So... This is how it was discovered. 
It is one of archaeology's most exciting discoveries, and it was made by four French teenagers and a dog. So, on September 12th of 1940, your birthday! um, The entrance to the Lascaux Cave was discovered by 18-year-old Marcel Ravida when his dog, Robot, or Robot, fell into a hole. He went, je te le, Robot! <laughs> Mon Dieu. And he went, oof, oof. <laughs> he did. That was the that was the noise that Robot made. <laughs> so Ravida returned to the scene with three friends, Jacques Marsal, Georges Angel, and Simon Coencas. Uh, there was a local story about a secret tunnel that led to buried treasure, or possibly a secret entrance to the nearby Lascaux Manor, and the boys thought that this might be it. Okay. So they they dropped some stones into the hole just to kind of get an idea of how deep it was. Um, and they actually one by one went very cautiously down into what proved to be a very narrow shaft. Mm-hmm. So it led down 15 meters or nearly 50 feet to a cave whose walls were covered with astonishing paintings. Marsal said later that going down the shaft was terrifying, but the paintings were, quote, a cavalcade of animals larger than life that seemed to be moving. So the boys were actually worried about getting back up again, but they managed it using their elbows and knees. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they were super excited and they promised each other to keep it a secret. And they explored it again the next day. And then after that, they decided to show it to friends for an admission fee. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Do you think they got, did they get Robo back? They did get okay. Robo back. Just Robo checking. is totally Just fine. Yeah. So the news quickly spread and so many people came to see the caves that the boys consulted their schoolmaster, whose name was Leon Laval. Um, and he was a member of the local prehistory society. So he, and this is how, this is how I was like, oh, these boys were bad boys. <laughs> he suspected that it was a ruse to trap him in the hole. Um, but when he went down and he saw the paintings, he immediately felt sure that they were prehistoric okay. and insisted that no one must be allowed to touch them and they must be guarded against vandalism. Okay. Um, the youngest of the boys, 14-year-old Marsal, persuaded his parents to let him pitch a tent near the entrance to keep guard and to show visitors around. Aww. And this was the start of a commitment to the paintings, which lasted until his death in 1989. Isn't that sweet? He loved them so much. Um, So there are these galleries in, like, I guess, in the caves. Like, Mm -hmm. there's different, like, sections of it. Um, These galleries kind of suggest continuity um, or the, the context of it, the that represents the cavern where they were given names. So like mm-hmm. the different areas were given ra- names. So these include the hall of the bulls, the passageway, the shaft, the nave, the apse, and the chamber of felines, also known as the cat diverticulum. And when you look at the map of the, the Lascaux caves, mm-hmm. it really does look like the human gastrointestinal system. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> So the word of the discovery reached the Abbe Broy, an eminent prehistorian who vouched for the painting's authenticity. And Broy would make many sketches of the cave, some of which are actually used as study material today because the caves have actually like degraded to such a degree. And we'll talk about that in a second. Because of human contact? Yes, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so Broy was accompanied by Denis Peroni, who was curator of Les Azis, at Les Azis. Uh, it's a prehistory, prehistory museum. Um, there's Jean Boissani uh, and Dr. Chenier. So they were all members of this prehistory society and like archaeologists. 
So this sensational news spread across Europe and the rest of the world. And in 1948, the family that owned the land organized daily tours that eventually brought thousands of visitors every year to see it for themselves. Ah, okay. So they have to like descend down a shaft. Oh, yeah. So they were like, like sliding down kind of thing. Okay. This is, uh, this is great. Yeah. Okay. First of all, I have to tell you, anytime... I hear of like something was discovered in a cave. Yeah. In my brain, it's like someone was climbing a mountain and they saw an undercropping and yeah. they went, I'm going to go in there. And then it's a cave. And yeah. then they're like, whoa. Yeah. So in my head, when I've been picturing it all these years, I was thinking it was like that. Like, yeah. just like, here's a big hole in a mountain. Yeah. It's like, whoops, gonna walk let's in. go in. Ah. Yeah. Like, like you see in movies. Yes. Yeah. That's what I thought or too. Or like the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's exactly. what I thought. I thought they were like, Someone yeah. had put them back here for safekeeping yeah. out, out of the elements. I didn't realize that they had to like yeah, it's physically all underground. descend under yeah. the earth. It's amazing. So yeah, I know you don't really think of caves as being, you think of caves as I mean, like I know the caves are there, but I don't, but yeah, like. you don't think about it. I don't think about yeah. it. Yeah, I know. I get it. I was the same way. So initial archaeological investigations began about a year later. And this focused on the shaft. Hey, yo. Um, so by, by 1955, carbon dioxide, heat, humidity, and other contaminants produced by 1,200 visitors per day uh-huh. had visibly damaged the paintings. So as the air conditions deteriorated, fungi yeah. and lichen increasingly infested the walls uh, and affected the paintings. Okay. So consequently, the cave was closed to the public in 1963, and the paintings were attempted to be restored to their original state, and a monitoring system on a daily basis was introduced, and they're still closed. You okay. still can't go okay. in. Okay, so you can't see them. No, no especially not the public can yeah. see them. Um, it was that archaeologists could go in with permission for a long time, mm-hmm. but in the early 2000s, they realized that there was black mold growing on the walls uh, because just from people. Yeah. Exactly. So there was like this whole committee that was created to like figure out how to clean them and preserve them and all this stuff. So this is something that they're constantly like working on even to this day, like trying to maintain these Mm -hmm. caves in like a good state so that they can be preserved for the future. So they were like untouched for like 15,000 years. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then we ruined it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. (laughs) We ruined it. Yeah, basically. So you can see, Lascaux mm-hmm. to a certain extent mm-hmm. because subsequent replicas have been made. Okay. So there were um, three made. So there's Lascaux 2, which is an exact copy of the Great Hall of the Bulls and the Painted Gallery. And that was displayed at the Grand Palais in Paris before being displayed from 1983 in the cave's vicinity. Okay. So it's about 200 meters or 660 feet away from the original cave. Mm-hmm. So this was obviously a compromise in an attempt to present the impression of the painting scale and composition for the public without harming the originals. Um, a full range of Lascaux's wall art is presented a few kilometers from the site at the Center of Prehistoric Art, or Le Parc du Tot, where there also live live animals representing Ice Age fauna. And the paintings for this site were duplicated with the same type of materials, such as iron oxide, charcoal, and ochre, which we'll talk about in a second. Mm-hmm which were believed to be used about 19,000 years ago. Um, Lascaux 3 is a series of five exact reproductions of the cave art, the nave and the shaft, that since 2012 have traveled around the world. Wow. Have they ever come near us? I don't don't know. I mean, you'd think that they would. I bet they went to like New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas, and that was it. You know, maybe Orlando, (laughs) but probably not. 
Um, and then there's Lesko 4, which is a relatively new copy of all the painted areas of the cave that forms part of the International Center for Parietal Art. And since December 2016, this larger and more accurate replica, which integrates digital technology into the display, is presented in a new museum built inside the hill overlooking Montagnac. Ooh, cool. Yeah. So you can go there and see it. This, this reminds me of kind of like a sidebar. And it's I know I'm putting you on the spot. But like in the, let's say, the 19th centuries, early 20th centuries, mm-hmm. they if there were like famous statues or like monuments Mm -hmm. people would make casts of them and kind of like have them in other museums so that you could see like well this is what the venus the famous venus de milo statue looks like and this reminds me of that it's just kind of like we made we made a copy so you guys can see it so everybody come see see this cool thing yeah like we don't have the internet so we're gonna make copies so people can see it yeah i mean it's it's a common thing it's more common than people realize and in fact it's happening to like a more um, like specific degree. There's a company in Spain whose name, I think they're called Arte, something Arte. It'll come to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they do is they make exact replicas of artworks mm-hmm. that are like 3D printed and they use both tech, like technology, mm-hmm. like scanning technology and a team of artists so that they can do like brushwork and like, co- like copy an yeah. artist style. And they do this for museums, they do this for movie sets, they do this for mm-hmm. all sorts of things. Um, and things like this, where the original is too damaged to display, and so they have an exact copy, yeah. like down to like the like What's molecule, breaking. basically, yeah. um, that can be displayed in the same scale and everything like that, which is really cool. Yeah. Because I was just like, like you just, it, you know, just saying like they have a replica and it was touring, just made me think um, when we were at the Kelvin Grove in... Um, in Glasgow, they had a whole section that you kind of like did this walk across the second floor. And it, when you look down, it was this like both of these galleries were just like, this is a giant structure from Greece. Yeah. And this is here's a big statue. Yeah. And like you're just looking down, you're like, what? There's just yeah. like a, a just, warehouse? What? Yeah. Happened? They just made a bunch of copies yeah, and like distributed all over the place. Like, look at, look at this big thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's cool. amazing. It is. It's a cool thing. Um, here's a cool fact too. Lascaux is not the only cave art in the area, which is wild. So the Lascaux Valley is located some distance from the major concentrations of decorated caves and inhabited sites, most of which were discovered further downstream. So in the environs of the village of, here we go, Aziz de Teac Suroy, there are no fewer than 37 decorated caves and shelters, as well as an even greater number of habitation sites from the Upper Paleolithic, located in the open beneath a sheltering overhang or at the entrance to one of the area's um, like cave-like cavities. Cool. This is the highest concentration in Europe. Which So this, this region cool. was very, I guess, conducive to prehistoric people Mm -hmm. doing a lot of cave art and we'll talk a little bit about like what that cave art may have been for yeah so as i mentioned before the cave contains nearly six thousand figures which can be grouped into three main categories so you have animals human figures and abstract signs (laughs) yeah the abstract so wild so the paintings contain no images of the surrounding landscape or the vegetation at the time. Mm-hmm. And most of the major images have been painted onto the walls using red, yellow, and black colors from a complex 
bunch of mineral pigments, including iron compounds like iron oxide, hematite, geothite, as well as manganese containing pigments. And charcoal may have also been used, mm-hmm. but not as much as you would think, Okay, um, which is interesting. And on some of the cave walls, the color may have been applied as um, a suspension of pigment in either animal fat or calcium-rich cave groundwater or clay, um, which made paint that was either swabbed or kind of like blotted on. Finger paint. Yeah, finger paint. Mix it with some animal fat. Exactly. And it's interesting that it was usually suspended in like animal fat or whatever like wet thing was Mm -hmm. around because you'd think like drinking water was something that was very precious and so you wouldn't waste it on like art mm-hmm. um but if you know, you're in a cave with a water source exactly you can just you and got, you're not drinking it anyway because it probably tastes like sulfur mm-hmm. you're just like going to use that um so in other areas the color was applied by spraying the pigments by blowing yeah. the mixture through either like a tube that they made or like through their hands That's which is interesting crazy. i remember seeing like a hand paint. Yeah. yeah they would put their hand up and then they would spray the paint with their mouths all over it so it's like a like a reverse of yeah. their hands, which is like wild to like look at and see. Also where the rock surface is softer, some designs have been like actually cut Ooh. into the stone and many images are too faint to discern and others have deteriorated entirely. So this was always underground. Yeah, it was always underground. It was preserved because it was not exposed to, you know, like the changing weather and all of that stuff and people too. Yeah, it's wild. So over 900 of the images can be identified as animals, and 605 of them have been precisely identified. (laughs) So um, out of these images, there are 364 paintings of equines or horses, as well as 90 paintings of stags. Also represented are cattle and bison, each representing about 4 to 5% of the images. Um, A smattering of other images include seven felines, hence the cat diverticulum, a bird, a bear, a rhinoceros, and a human. Only one human is represented at the Lascaux Caves. There are no images of reindeer, even though that was the principal source of food for these people at the time. And geometric images have also been found on the walls. So the most famous section that you've probably seen, like when you Google Lascaux, Mm -hmm. this is the image that you see. It's the Hall of Bulls, where bulls, equines, aurochs, stags, and the only bear in the cave are depicted. So the four black bulls, or aurochs, are the dominating figures among the 36 animals represented here. And one of the bulls is 5.2 meters or 17 feet long. It's huge. It is the largest animal discovered so far in cave art. And additionally, the bulls appear to be in motion. They appear to be running. Uh Um, Also, one quick thing about aurochs. um, They're described as bulls, but they were huge. And hunting them wasn't like really a thing because of that. Yeah. So later in the Near East and in India, they were domesticated, but hunting them would have been like getting all your friends together to hunt a Subaru Forester with horns. So it was like not <laughs> like conducive to like yeah, living. Kind of let those guys. Yeah, those guys get to do what yeah. they want. Um, also, what's interesting in terms of art history, a painting referred to as the crossed bison, which is found in the chamber called the nave, is often submitted as an example of the skill of these Paleolithic cave mm. painters. Um the bulls are facing away from each other, but one is behind the other. So their crossed hind legs create the illusion that they're they're away from each other in space. One okay. is behind the other. And this kind of like impression of visual depth demonstrates this kind of primitive form of perspective, which was actually wow. particularly advanced for the time. So as I mentioned before, for all the animals depicted across the entirety of the cave, there's only one representation of a human. So this is a man with a fully erect penis. 
uh, and he's wearing a bird's head, and he seems to be lying on the ground, perhaps knocked down by a buffalo, which is um, actually gutted by a spear. You can see the spear through mm-hmm. his body and his guts coming out. And at the man's side, there's uh, this like staff-looking thing with a little bird on top. And on the left, um, rhinoceros is moving away. So I'm going to show you this image. <laughs> so let me see where my microphone is. Okay. So here he is. This yep, is our little guy. There he is. He's got like a little bird head. Yeah, he does have a little He's bird got a little head. erect penis. There's his little mm-hmm. bird, right? And then here's the big buffalo, and he's mad. And there's his guts coming out. And then there's, wow. we'll post a picture. And then there's the spear. So there's this right here, which is this like like this barbed kind yeah. of stick or broken stick or whatever. And then you can kind of see these two dots here. Uh-huh. There's the rhinoceros over here. Oh, okay. And the rhinoceros is moving away. And there's um, six dots that are like three and three. So there's like two dots, one on top of the other, another two dots, one on top of the other, mm-hmm. and another two dots, one on top of the mm-hmm. other. So it kind of looks, and I hate to say this because I know you don't like it, it kind of looks like the rhinoceros is pooping, but he's not. These are these series of dots have been seen in other parts of the cave. I wouldn't have, wouldn't have crossed my mind. Well, I would have thought, great, they're counting things. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> so there's a lot of various interpretations of what, what's going on here. Like, it's the only depiction of a human being. That's weird. This must be important, but what's happening? So there's also a horse on the opposite wall. That may or may not be important. Um, So as mentioned, these three pair of dots are also found at the bottom of the cat diverticulum in the most remote part of the cave. Hmm. And then under the man and the bison is that complex barbed symbol that looks like a broken stick. Um, That can be found almost identically on the other walls of the cave nearby. Maybe it means that they died while killing this. So yeah, so that's one interpretation. But they also think that that stick is possibly like a clan symbol. Oh, yeah. Um, because okay. it's also seen on, um, there have been lamps, like animal fat lamps mm-hmm. that were excavated from the cave, and they're on the lamp oh. as well. You didn't tell me that. Well, I mean. Oh, would I? No, I am. So there also, it might be symbols of lightning or like a meteor shower. Mm. And a widespread hunter-gatherer belief, they think, is that fire had individualities like peoples and animals. And different fires were not mixed. So there's this distinction between fire collection, new fire, okay. and fire production, known as old fire. Okay. And that the purest fire was believed to originate in the sky. So fire collected from, say, a forest struck by lightning was considered more sacred than a fire produced by people. Whoa. Yeah. So the fact that these lamps and these kind of pre-metallurgical weapons had these marks on them Mm -hmm. makes their symbolism more like conceivable as maybe aerial streaks of a fire that were cosmic in origin. Oh, interesting. So this image again has been the subject of scores of interpretations by historians and art theorists throughout the years. So the more, most straightforward, like you mentioned, is that this is a depiction of a dramatic and heroic death Mm -hmm. complete with erect penis, which probably means that the man's spine was severed by the aurochs attack. I didn't know that that's what happens when your spine gets severed, but congratulations, gentlemen. That's something. Um, Other people see the man. (laughs) Other people see the man as like a shaman because he seems to be wearing Mm -hmm. this bird mask, and that he's possibly in a trance and he's dreaming these images in front of him. They were just really bad at making faces. It's definitely possible they're just really bad at making faces, but apparently this. So there is a history of this time period of 
both animal human hybrids where okay. like there'd be this human body and then an animal mask or an mm-hmm. animal head. So it seemed like this was something to do with religion or belief system or trance like things, shamanism, that kind of thing. Wouldn't it be funny if it if it was just a joke? I know, right? Like, it was just like, <laughs> <laughs> you can look at this is you. I drew, I'm Drew. I'm Drew Grog. <laughs> Grog is so dumb. This look, he's Grog. got a bird face. Grog is so stupid. Look at his dumb penis. He got penis. run over by this buffalo. <laughs> I know. That's, and then and then a million years later we're like we're like <laughs> debating oh, it must like be this. <laughs> yeah, I mean the stuff that the art historians come up with is incredible. But so for example, according to David Lewis Williams and Jean Clotz, who both studied presumably similar art of the sand people of southern Africa, this type of art is spiritual in nature relating to visions experienced during ritualistic trance dancing. So what's interesting is that trance visions are a function of the human brain and are independent of geographical location. So trances happen and and the history of like shamanism and trance dancing and this kind of thing happen across the world Mm -hmm. in a lot of different religions. Um, Nigel Spivey, who is a professor of classical art and archeology span at the University of Cambridge, um, he has further postulated in his series, How Art Made the World, that the dot and lattice patterns overlapping these images of animals are very similar to hallucinations provoked by sensory deprivation. Like being stuck in a cave for a while? Like being stuck in a cave for a while. So he postulates that these connections between culturally important animals and these hallucinations led to this invention of drawing basically image making um and also to continue this theory some scholars believe that the animals were drawn over natural discolorations on the walls of the caves leading to the belief that this space was considered a place where spirit animals already existed so they were just kind of like bringing them out kind of thing huh um, also, other archaeologists and anthropologists believe that the drawings represent seasonality. So the animal forms in the shaft correspond with the solstices and the equinoxes during Lascaux's upper Paleolithic use. And the personalities of the animals also relate to the nature of these annual transitions. So the senior, seasonal characters are the bird, the rhinoceros, the horse, and the bison. And the cosmic event they collectively record was placed within the deep recesses of the shaft since both cave interior and the outer reaches of visible space mark the boundaries of the ordinary world. So it's this idea of like the deep darkness of the cave because you can't see anything Uh and you might have like sensory deprivation hallucinations. It's like being in space and looking at the stars, which is wild. So art historian Michael Rice says, um, talks about this in in relation to the bull characters. Mm -hmm. So he says, the bull leads his followers into some very dark caverns. Literally so, since the bull is an underworld creature and is, however mysteriously, associated with forces which are found under the earth. The bull is identified with earthquake, with the roar of volcanoes and landslip and with flood. But the bull also leads on to the stars. Isn't that cool? Um, Also, just real quick, uh, there is a movie, a documentary called Cave of Forgotten Dreams from 2010. It is a 3D documentary by Werner Herzog. It is not about Lascaux specifically, but it is shot in the Chauvet Caves in the south of France. Okay. And those drawings are even older. They are 32 to 30,000 years old, which is out of control. Yeah, I can't can't conceive of that. So if you want to see cave paintings in a more realistic way in their original setting, because mm-hmm. he was allowed to film inside the caves, Whoa. even though nobody's allowed to be in there, um, it is worth seeing. However, I will say it is incredibly boring. It is an incredibly boring movie. Steve and I went to see it like on our like third or fourth date, and he was like, wasn't that wonderful? And I was like, I nearly fell asleep halfway through. 
I don't know what Does it is Werner about. Does Werner Herzog narrate it too? He did narrate it. He was like, look at the caves. The caves. And at one point he was like, life is meaningless. Death comes for us all. Look at the caves. These people are dead. They've been dead for so long. Like, incredible. Um, so yeah, so that was that was my <laughs> class history of the Lascaux caves. No, it's so interesting. Like, t- and it really it really makes you think. It really does, because it's like, well, so the the thing that blows my mind is that these were people who were their whole life was just surviving, mm-hmm. right? They had to find shelter. They had to f- be safe from attacking animals and other people. They had to find food and they had to find water. Like, and they had to procreate. That was like it. So the fact that they were taking time out of surviving to make this very intricate artwork must mean that it was extremely important to them to make sure that that gets done. And like- And to hide it in a cave. And it hide it in a cave. Exactly. Like they didn't live in caves. They were transient people. They were hunter gatherers. So what- what did this mean? And we're all like, I don't know. Like it could mean this, who knows? So it's kind of cool. I love it. Yeah, me too. It's pretty cool. So my quiz today, hanging a quick left is about Werner Herzog. (laughs) No, I don't know anything about it. It's okay. You're fine. I was going to say Lauren, by the way, can you tell me a little bit about Werner Herzog? No, you're going to learn a lot about him. Don't worry. (laughs) Okay. Question number one. Werner is probably best known to the non-cinephile for his iconic Teutonic voice. But is Herzog Austrian or German? Question number two. This 2005 documentary by our boy Werner is solely about the life and dramatic death of Timothy Treadwell, who was eaten by his beloved bears. What is the title of this documentary? Question number three. The impossibly titled Bad Lieutenant Colon, Port of Call, New Orleans, is a 2009 Herzog feature film that stars Ava Mendez, Jennifer Coolidge, Val Kilmer, Exhibit, and this scene-chewing actor who, of course, was in a movie called Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. Question number four. Wings of Hope, a Herzog documentary made for TV in 1998, tells the story of Julianne Kopke, a German-Peruvian woman who is the sole survivor of the Lanza Flight 508, which was struck by lightning and disintegrated in midair in 1971. Julianne survived for 11 days alone in this remote part of South America. Where did Julianne spend these days? Question number five. Herzog is also a prolific actor, although he tends to play either himself or a close version of himself. He's also lent his distinctive voice to several incongruous TV shows, including The Boondocks, The Simpsons, American Dad, and this Adult Swim series beloved by edgelords and sauce enthusiasts the world over. Name it. Question number six. One of the more recent docs by Werner is about the life of this world leader who was the eighth and last leader of the Soviet Union. The 2018 film features three interviews between Herzog and this guy conducted over a span of six months. Who was the subject of this documentary? Question number seven. One of his most famous fictional films is Aguirre, The Wrath of God. All of his titles are dramatic like this. In this film, constant collaborator Klaus Kinski plays the titular Spanish soldier Lope de Aguirre, who leads a group of conquistadores down the Amazon River to find this mythical city. What city were they looking for, which had been a legend for so long that generations of men searched for it in vain? 
Question number eight. Fitzcarraldo, another film with Klaus Kinski, was a set so troubled and chaotic that there was a documentary made about making the film entitled Burden of Dreams. Fitzcarraldo is about a rubber baron who is determined to access a rich rubber source in the Amazon basin, but chooses to access it by transporting what over a steep hill? Question number nine. Multiple choice. This terrible movie, released on the Discovery Channel in 2012, was not made by Werner, but was narrated by him. The film utilized CGI imagery to portray dinosaurs and other animals in surprisingly gory detail from the Nesozoic era. What was the name of this ill-conceived and universally hated movie? A. Dinotopia B. Dinotasia C. Disneysaur or D. Dinomite And finally, question number 10. Werner Herzog was a surprise addition to this hit Disney slash Star Wars TV show where he of course played a bad guy, much to the joy and delight of Steve and myself. What is this TV show where his most famous line was, I would like to see the baby. I'll give you a minute to think. Was a cowboy I knew in South Texas His face was burnt deep by the sun Part history, part sage, part Mexican He was there when Pancho Villa was young And he'd tell you a tale of the old days When the country was wild all around Sit out under the stars of the Milky Way And listen while the coyotes howl And they go, Woo-yip, 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 Here's the thing. I have alternatively thought that Werner Herzog was not a real person <laughs> and that he has been dead for decades. So yeah. the fact that you're bringing up things <laughs> from like 2018 from now. Yeah. I am lost. <laughs> I am lost. So Thank sorry. you for two multiple choice questions <laughs> that will at least give me a... <laughs> a, a at least, I, at least I will not get a zero on this quiz. I really, I mean, a lot of these questions don't really have to do with Werner Herzog specifically. That's true, but like, I feel, I feel like I see him used like on Twitter as yes. like a like a very like dark yes, voice. He's always like of something. Death is so dear to all of us. <laughs> yes, but like again, I didn't know he was real until well, very. A very short time ago. <laughs> if an alien came down from space and we said, let me describe to you this famous director who's considered one of our best directors in, in you know, the world. And we described this man, they would be like, that's not a real person. That's a fictional person. Can you tell me at least how old he is? He is, I think, in his 70s. Here we go. Let's, let's look. 
Werner Herzog is 78 years old. Okay. So he is old. But, and you know what? In the, in the answers, I'll give you some fun little tidbits about Werner. So you'll know more about him. Great. Okay. By the end of this, I'll be a, a what do they call him? Werner file? He'll be a Werner file. Okay. Question number one. Werner is best known for his, to the non-cinephile for his iconic Teutonic voice. But is Herzog Austrian or German? I'll flip a coin and I'll say he's Austrian. He's German. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. He was born in Munich. Um, So when he was 13, he was told by a bullying music teacher to sing in front of the class at school. Uh, And Herzog said, to break my back. When he adamantly refused, he was almost expelled. The incident scarred him for life. And for several years, Herzog listened to no music, sang no songs, and studied no instruments. But when he turned 18, he immersed himself in music with particular intensity. So this is the kind of personality we're dealing with. So early on, he was he was a like, spite queen. I will not play the music. Yeah. Um, question number two. This 2005 documentary by our boy Werner is solely about the life and dramatic death of Timothy Treadwell, who was eaten by his beloved bears. What is the title of this documentary? Is that Grizzly Man? It is Grizzly Man. I didn't know he was involved in this. Um, yes, he, he... I guess I thought that the Grizzly Man shot his own doc- footage. And then oh, they were he just did. Like, and then they were just like, here you go, guys. Yeah. You want to watch it? Well, I guess the woman who was his friend, Timothy's friend, who owned all of his... She was like the... She owned his estate. Yeah. She gave all the footage over to Werner Herzog. And she was like, if anybody can do it, it's Werner. And he was like, this is wonderful. <laughs> like He just loves like a dramatic, terrible thing. Did you thing. watch that? Oh, I, I've watched it several times. It's amazing. It's probably my favorite Herzog documentary. Um, in 2006, he was shot in the abdomen while on Skyline Drive in Los Angeles while he was giving an interview about Grizzly Man to Mark Kermode of the BBC. I watched that you can find the scene on YouTube. He's like, there's this documentary. Ah, ah. And they're like, are you okay? And he's like, I'm fine. And then he just keeps talking. <laughs> it's amazing. He continued the, he continued the interview without seeking medical treatment. He got shot while <clears throat> filming an yeah. interview. He was like, ah, ah. it's amazing. And then the shooter later turned out to be a crazed fan with an air rifle. And he said later, Werner Herzog said later, I seem to attract the clinically insane. (laughs) (laughs) This is this man. Okay. Question number three. The impossibly titled Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, is a 2009 Herzog feature film that stars Ava Mendes, Jennifer Coolidge, Val Kilmer, Exhibit, and this scene-chewing actor who, of course, was in a movie called Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. I'm going to say Nicolas Cage. You are correct. (laughs) Fun fact about Nicolas Cage. He has said that at a certain point in his career, he realized that he had developed his own method of acting, which he described as nouveau shamanic. In other interviews, he defined his acting style using terms such as German expressionism or Western kabuki. For the film Birdie, in order to physically feel the pain of his character, which was a veteran from the Vietnam War, he removed two teeth from his head without anesthesia and also spent five weeks with his face wrapped in bandages. And when he finally took the bandages off, his skin was infected because of acne and ingrown hairs. He's out of his mind and he is perfect for Werner Herzog. I'm just saying. 
Question number four. Wings of Hope, a Herzog documentary made for TV in 1998, tells the story of Julianne Kepke, a German-Peruvian woman who was the sole survivor of the Lanza Flight 508, which was struck by lightning and disintegrated in mid-air in 1971. Julianne survived for 11 days alone in this remote part of South America. Where did Julianne spend these days? I... I and it's funny because I just read an article about this too. Um, I know it was in the western part of South America. Cause it's just what what's a you know what it is. It's it's big. It's remote. It's it's big. The, the Amazon. Yes, it is the Amazon <laughs> rainforest. Um, that is a wild story. It is like she was still the plane disintegrated around her. She was in high school. Yeah, she was still strapped to her chair. Mm-hmm. Fell from the sky yeah. into the Amazon rainforest. Broke like I think an arm, and then she had like a bunch of yeah. infections. I think and, she had a broken leg too. Yeah, yeah. And she like lost her glasses. She was blind. Yeah. And but because her parents were scientists, yes, she had spent a lot of time in this area, and she knew like she had some semblance of yeah. like, okay, this is the type of food that's safe to eat. Yeah, here's how I can get water. Yeah, she I have knew, to follow like, the river. She knew follow the river because mm-hmm. that's where the people are. Yeah, so she exactly. knew she had to get to water. She got super lost. Yeah, she had like two candy bars on her person. Yeah, that she like ration the whole time and what was so sad about that like i'm not gonna watch this documentary no absolutely not nope me neither it's not for me uh but like reading about it it said like she would she would randomly come across other other yeah people who had also been part of the plane and she um this part's so bad yeah um there was like a whole row of seats that was that had fallen like head first into the ground mm-hmm. that so they were like stuck in the ground yeah and she went to check to make sure none of them was her mother yeah and she looked at like the foot of the one lady and she was like okay they have nail polish on my mother would have never worn nail polish and that's like yeah. a thing that has like stuck with her this whole time and yeah that, but also really stuck with me when i yeah it's really it. it's super messed up but she but she found people. Yeah, she found people. She survived. Now she's a, she's a naturalist, I think. Yeah. She was a naturalist. I don't know if she's still and alive. And she kept going back. Yeah, she kept going back. To the research station. Yeah. Wild. This woman is like bold as brass. And the reason why Herzog was interested in telling her story was because he was slated to be on her flight. <gasps> but a last minute change of plan spared him from the plane oh crash. Isn't that the wildest thing? Ugh. Anyway, question number five. Uh, Herzog is also a prolific actor, although he tends to play either himself or a close version of himself. He's also lent his distinctive voice to several incongruous TV shows, including The Boondocks, The Simpsons, American Dad, and this adult swim series beloved by edgelords and sauce enthusiasts the world over. Name it. Oh, Rick and Morty. It is Rick and Morty. (laughs) I've never seen it, obviously. It was in 2015. I didn't particularly care to look up the name of his character, but he's in an episode of Rick and Morty if you're really interested in watching them. Would you have known that, Engineer Josh? Josh would have known that, yeah. But like when you heard him on the show, did you know who it was? Could have been any. Could have been any weird German. It could have been someone doing an impression of Werner Herzog, to be honest. Because I thought he wasn't real. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Question number six. One of the more recent docs by Werner is about the life of this world leader, who is the eighth and last leader of the Soviet Union. The 2018 film features three interviews between Herzog and this guy conducted over the span of six months. Who was the subject of this documentary? Is it Gorbachev? It is. It's Mikhail Gorbachev. So the movie, incidentally, is called Meeting Gorbachev. Uh, The film ends with Gorbachev reciting the poem, I Go Out on the Road Alone by Mikhail Lermontov. 
So there you go. Okay, question number seven. One of his most famous fictional films is Aguirre, The Wrath of God. All of his titles are dramatic like this. In this film, constant collaborator Klaus Kinski plays the titular Spanish soldier Lope de Aguirre, who leads a group of conquistadores down the Amazon River to find this mythical city. Uh, What city were they looking for, which had been a legend for so long that generations of men searched for it in vain? Is this El Dorado? It is El Dorado. So two of the most famous of these expeditions were led by Sir Walter Raleigh. And in pursuit of the legend, Spanish conquistadors and numerous others searched what is today Colombia, Venezuela, and parts of Guyana and northern Brazil for the city and its fabulous king. In the course of these explorations, as you know, much of northern South America, including the Amazon River, was mapped. And by the beginning of the 19th century, most people dismissed the existence of the city as a myth. So something. But our boy Mansa Musa had a lot of gold over in Africa. Yeah, he sure did. Question number eight, Fitzcarraldo, another film with Klaus Kinski, was a set so troubled and chaotic that there was a documentary made about making the film entitled Burden of Dreams. I watched it with Steve. It was amazing. Uh, Fitzcarraldo is about a rubber baron who is determined to access a rich rubber source in the Amazon basin, but chooses to access it by transporting what over a steep hill? First, I thought you said Robber Baron, and then I went, no, she did say Robber Baron. (laughs) Yeah, That's funny. Mm -hmm. Robber Baron. Uh, How about chewing gum? Mm, The answer is a steamship. Uh, So Herzog forced his crew to manually haul the 320-ton steamship up a steep hill, which led to three injuries. You would think it would be more. Uh, the film's original star, Jason Robards, became sick halfway through filming, so Herzog reluctantly hired Kinski, with whom he had previously clashed violently during the production of Aguirre, the Wrath of God, Nosferatu, the Vampire, and Wojciech. Their fourth partnership fared no better, and an extra even offered to kill Kinski for Herzog. <laughs> Herzog, for his part, graciously declined. Um, his relationship with Klaus Kinski is so famous that he made a documentary call about it called my best fiend, which was about like, and the, the poster for it is a photo, a, a, like a, just a natural photo of Klaus Kinski with like murder in his eyes, trying to choke Werner Herzog to death. It's great. Question number nine. Multiple choice. This terrible movie released on the Discovery Channel in 2012 was not made by Werner, but was narrated by him. The film utilized CGI imagery to portray dinosaurs and other animals in surprisingly gory detail from the Mesozoic era. What was the name of this ill-conceived and universally hated movie? Was it A, Dinotopia, B, Dinotasia, C, Disneysaur, or D, Dinomite? Dinotopia. Mm. So I'll say Dinotasia. It was Dinotasia. Uh, reviews of this film include, quote, a well-meaning but listless compendium of unconnected prehistoric CG dino vignettes that is sure to bore children as it is to bemuse adults. <laughs> also, dull, meaningless, and a pretty frustrating film. And finally, my favorite, plays like a series of cutscenes from a 1997 PlayStation game. Um, Steve showed me like when we first started dating, when we were like really getting into Herzog films, he showed me the first like scene of the movie. It was so boring, like in his pacing already, like Herzog's pacing. 
he didn't make this movie, but his pacing is already like plotting at best. He loves a slow, just moving slowly down a street for no reason kind of thing. I didn't know that you guys had a Werner Herzog phase of your courtship yes it was and the that, classic herzog phase of any courtship and Julia. that you guys and that you stayed together through that <laughs> um i think it's because his i like Werner herzog because he takes himself at least ostensibly so seriously that it's like campy because he's just like a typical like german like nothing matters the universe is vast and does not care about us. You know, like that kind of thing. So that's why I love it. And also, he is a very good documentarian. Like, uh, the couple of documentaries that I've watched that he's done are excellent. Again, they tend to be very plodding, but they're good subjects about okay. cool things. Um, and finally, question number 10. Werner Herzog was a surprise addition to this hit Disney slash Star Wars TV show where he, of course, played a bad guy, much to the joy and delight of Steven myself. What is this TV show where his most famous line was, I would like to see the baby? That'll be the Mandalorian. It is the Mandalorian. So Herzog famously insisted that the part of Baby Yoda not be CGI, but puppet or like physical as much as possible. He told everybody on set, like, you have to make it a puppet because if it's CGI, you won't have the emotional connection to it. He is, without a doubt, the world's biggest fan of Baby Yoda. He said the puppet, when he came on set, it brought tears to his eyes. And he said in an interview, I have seen it on the set. I've seen it on the set. And it's heartbreaking. Like, he loves this Baby Yoda so much. And you would not think that someone like him would be so into, you know, a Star Wars character, but... Is is the character's name Grogu? It is. It's Grogu. Mm-hmm. But at the time, no one knew that was no his name, so that. he was the baby. He's a baby. Um, another key thing about me and Lauren... Sure, yeah. Is that Lauren likes not only Star Trek, but they've also watched all of the Marvel movies and all yeah. of the Star wars um i think we've we didn't watch the more recent ones and we haven't watched like any of like the animated stuff or like Mm -hmm. the clone wars or that kind of thing i just love like a space opera you know okay and i don't yeah so that's another big difference yeah between us and you know what that's okay life's a rich tapestry i hate puns and i do not like board games (laughs) it's a wonder we made it this far i know really it's true but, Sorry, my allergies are like... No, it's okay. I know. I forgot to take my allergy medicine this morning, too. And it's just... It's torture. It's tough out there, guys. Yeah. But uh, you know what? We've survived. We're still best friends. We're still doing a podcast, despite our many and myriad differences. <laughs> and if we can make it work, then the world can make it work. You know? Peace on Earth, you what guys. What do you say, guys? Let's do this. Um. Yeah, great job, Lauren. I <laughs> learned a lot today. I really did. Good, I'm so glad. I hope you all did too. Mainly that he's a real guy. Yeah, he's a real ass person. I'm gonna, I'm going to go look at some of those cave pictures too. Though. Yeah, definitely check those out. We'll post some pictures, definitely the chef scene that I talked about um, and the um, mostly the map of it from above because it really does look like the human gastrointestinal system. It's kind of amazing. So, um, but yeah, thanks so much for listening, you guys. And uh, we will catch you next time. Yeah, catch you next time. Adios. Bye.